Greetings and welcome to Best Cultural Destinations podcast, People Are Culture. I'm Meg Pierre, host of this interview series, which presents stories of how culture is created, preserved, and shared, one person at a time. People Are Culture podcast celebrates our unique differences and shared human condition and reveals that while the phenomenon of culture is universal, its meaning is personal. Bill Levasseur is founder and curator of Another Face of Mexico Folk Art Gallery and Mask Museum in San Miguel de Allende, Mexico. Originally from Maine, Bill worked from 1968 to 1970 as a professional musician, singer, and recording artist with Decca Records. He then joined an advertising agency, launching a career that lasted 30 years. He was assigned to the international division of his company, and that took his family to Mexico City from 1974 to 1978, and then to Brussels from 1978 to 1983. He returned to Mexico City on assignment in 1994. In 1997, he retired from the advertising business and moved to San Miguel de Allende. Bill has been collecting Mexican ceremonial masks for as long as he has been in Mexico, and he still travels extensively to see and film dance ceremonies and acquire masks. His mask collecting hobby has now become an avocation to document and share the indigenous ceremonial customs with mask museum visitors, college audiences, and Mexican school children. The museum opened to the public in February of 2006. I am delighted to welcome Bill to share with us his knowledge about Mexico's ceremonial masking tradition. Bill, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me and uh, share your expertise with listeners of Best Cultural Destinations podcast, and welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to great to be here and talk talk with you. Well, your story is one that I identify with a great deal. Um, as you discovered a passion, and you have followed it with zeal, uh, sharing your fascination with other people. So I'd like to start by asking you to give us an overview of your journey and how it led you to San Miguel and becoming an expert on Mexican ceremonial masks. Thank, thank you. <clears throat> well, first of all, um, I know people in, in Mexico, anthropologists, ethnographers that have forgotten more than I will ever learn about this subject. So uh, thank you for calling me an expert. I, I, I know a little bit about a very narrow subject, which I'll ho hopefully share with uh, your podcast listeners. But it all started uh, 25 years ago when my company in New York City sent me to Mexico City to do some work in Latin America. And uh, my wife and I were invited to a a cocktail party or a dinner party, and I met a uh, a Mexican gentleman who was an anthropologist by uh, education and a mask collector, <clears throat> and he uh, he invited Heidi, my wife Heidi, and I over to uh, his his home on a Sunday afternoon for lunch, and that was my very first exposure to his mask collection, very first exposure to masks, and since he was an anthropologist. Uh, uh, he was he was able to put everything in context for me. He, he would uh, lift a mask off off the wall and and uh, describe to me uh, the indigenous group that performed it and the kind of ceremony w was involved and 
uh, I just I just found it fascinating. I and that was that I just got lucky very early on when we came to Mexico um, to be exposed to this um, this cultural behavior that I had no no prior um, no prior exposure to and. And uh, every mask had a story. It, it had context, and I, of course, I was interested in the mask aesthetically, but um, uh, I, I was really fascinated by the, the the dances, the ceremonies, and so I started learning from him and started doing some academic research. I poured through the the stacks in the uh, the archives at a few libraries, and eventually, when my Spanish uh, improved or got got to a point where I was comfortable uh, going out into the countryside myself and uh, visiting the villages. Uh, I started collecting masks lo locally, and uh, I always I've always been uh, doing what I would call amateur ethnographic research. You know, I I, I interview people when I'm in the villages so I can understand uh, the ceremonies, the dances themselves, and uh, so I talk to I I, I talk to the performers. I talked to mask makers in the local villages who are a very, very good source of information. Mask makers know all the the characters in the ceremony since they're making them, they're carving them or creating them. And they also uh, very often know about the uh, pre-Columbian derivation of some of the ceremonies that are, 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 are done today. And I also, I also have conversations with the, uh, I try to find the oldest people I can find in a, in a village sometimes. Uh, because the elders very often know a lot more about the the customs and traditions than do the younger folks who are are performing. So, so I've been doing this for uh, you know 25 odd years and uh, uh, developed a, a collection. Uh, I, the museum that I have has got about I don't know 600 masks in it that have all been performed, used in ceremony, and uh, and all the and all the. Uh, the museum is completely curated in both English and Spanish. So, anyway, it's a it's a hobby. My wife calls it a hobby on steroids, <laughs> but but it's it's something that I just uh, I really enjoy doing. And and I have museum visitors almost every day that I give a talk to. You know, a 20, 20 minute or so introduction to. So I, I really enjoy. It's a it's a something that I I got very lucky uh, when we came to Mexico to have met this gentleman. I, he, I was introduced to him by another, by the creative director. I worked for an advertising agency, and the creative director, who's a very good friend of mine, um, introduced me to this family and this particular gentleman. Um, and so I, I credit my friend Gino, uh, and uh, for the introduction, and of course to Haled Muyaz and, and his uh, his wife Stella uh, uh, Ogazon. Her name is Stella Ogazon. Uh, they both have uh, have d passed on now. They're deceased, but uh, their daughters uh, continue with their collection. So I'm still an avid collector myself. Well, Bill, I, first I want to say I think you're quite humble. And, you know, I know myself um, sometimes being self-taught, um, you know, can carry with it a set of insecurities. Um, but having visited the museum and, you know, heard, um, you share some of your knowledge. I, I feel that you, you are an expert, at least in, certainly in my eyes, but to step back, the, the name of the museum is another face of Mexico yeah. and the masks that you've collected are made by Mexico's indigenous people. And, you know, it's, it's, they are part of the, the community life, the spiritual life, 
And Mexico has a very rich indigenous culture. And I'm wondering if you can share an overview of its diversity and, you know, tell us a little bit about, um, um, you know, a couple of the communities that, sure. that you've developed relationships with. Sure, sure. Um, well, first of all, just the, the statistics are pretty impressive. Um, most people who visit Mexico, particularly tourists who come to come to Mexico, um, don't really get exposed to the um, the indigenous culture. Uh, they, they, the, the, these people tend to live in, in, in rural, isolated areas, particularly concentrated in, in central and southern Mexico. But uh, if, if, if I can give you some statistics, it's pretty interesting. Um, you know, we, we're, we're 497 years since the conquest, right, since, since Mexico has been inhabited by uh, Europeans, particularly Spaniards. Um, and the arrival of the Catholic uh, brotherhoods, the friars, the Dominicans and Franciscans and Augustinians. And for, for the last 500 years, Mexico has metamorphosized or it's been tra trans, uh, uh, changed dramatically um, uh, since the, the influence of, of, of Europe. Um, and, and, and yet, uh, still today, you know, 497 years after the conquest, there's still a huge population of people in the country who self-identify in the census as being indigenous, and, and, and many of them are still speaking indigenous languages in their villages. Uh, uh, here, here are the statistics. Um, according to the, uh, the last census, which is uh, 2010, uh, a question is asked in the census, what is your nationality? ¿Cuál es su nacionalidad? That's the question they ask in the census. Uh, and 89% uh, of respondents in the census, this, this is household data, by the way, 89% of households responded by saying, we're Mexican. What is your nationality? Answer, Mexican, right? But 11% of the, of the population of Mexico, when asked the question, what is your nationality, answered by saying, somos nahuas, yo soy yaqui. Nosotros somos este huichol, yo soy zapotec, nosotros somos totonacos, etc., etc., etc. They hear in the question, what is your nationality? I guess what they're hearing is, mm, what is your indigenous cultural lineage, perhaps? And they're responding by quickly identifying with their, with their cultural uh, uh, ancestry. And it's, it is, and, and it's really interesting. I think they're answering the question, what is your nationality based on how they live, not where they live. Uh, and it's the how they live that I, I find fascinating when I'm visiting these villages because um, very often in these villages, um, in small communities, uh, they're speaking a native language, they dress in traditional ancestral dress, uh, they celebrate Catholicism uh, in, a, in a way that's quite syncretic or, or conflated or mixed in with pre-Columbian belief. It's quite quite common uh, how they how they celebrate certain life passages, uh, particularly the transition 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 from adolescence to adulthood is quite um, quite interesting, uh, and uh, and so so these these people are are living um, uh, kind of in the past. You know, there's kind of two Mexicos. There's the one you'd see if you came to San Miguel de Allende or, or a larger city or the beach resorts. And then there's this indigenous Mexico that um, uh, where, you know, over, over one out of 10 people or households in the last census identify quickly in answering the question, what is your nationality? 
they immediately uh, identify with a subculture or an indigenous group. Uh, incidentally, there are 62, today there are 62 different indigenous languages spoken in Mexico. Um, and they're all, all those languages, incidentally, are languages. They're not dialect one of another. They, somebody who speaks Otomi wouldn't understand somebody who speaks uh, uh, Setzil. Somebody who speaks Setzil wouldn't, under, wouldn't understand somebody who speaks uh, uh, Huasteco. These are separate languages. Uh, they all derive from, all those languages derive from three linguistic families, which I won't bore your listeners with, but it's really, it's really fascinating to, to, to see, uh, to travel to these areas that I go to, to see the ceremonies during the fiestas, to, to see if I can acquire masks and, and do research, because it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a very, still a very indigenous country. According to the CDI, the Centro de Desarrollo Indígena, which is a government agency, in, in 2015, uh, 25.6 million people in Mexico self-identify as being indigenous, which is 21% of the population. It, the point is, I guess, that is there's still this huge population in Mexico right. that's still, uh, when asked the question, what is your nationality? They don't say Mexican. Right. It's quite interesting. Mm. Well, uh, they're, they're, yeah. I, um, I think the diversity... Um, you know, in my own experience, having traveled a little bit in Mexico, you know, I've definitely seen, um, you know, that diversity. Now, I want to step back and um, frame the discussion of masking um, by looking at it more broadly. And masking is a cultural phenomenon that occurs in many different societies. Um, and... Right. Um, you know, before we get into some of the specific traditions in Mexico, I'd love to um, hear a little bit about, um, you know, why do people do this? What does the practice mean? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when did it begin? So if you could kind of share just the big picture for people, that would be great. One, yeah. Well, uh, one of the things I see when I'm in these villages is a very strong sense of the, the, the community celebrating their sense of cultural identity or cultural cohesion. They're very proud to be Otomi or they're very proud to be Nawa. They're very, very proud to be. They, that, that, ex, that, that expression manifests itself uh, on steroids during fiestas. This is when a, a community or a village uh, of uh, indigenous people, uh, many of whom are perfectly bilingual, they speak Spanish to me, that but, but, they're, but they're speaking a native language in their village. Um, they're, they're expressing a very strong sense of cultural pride. And I think, and again, I'm not a social scientist, uh, but I think what that is, is a, is a consequence of these people being marginalized and, and subjugated in some cases during the Porfirio Diaz regime, particularly 100 years ago. But it looks to me like what they're what they're doing is reacting to the, the the subjugation or the pressure from the outside, and that happened early on in the colonial period, where people were you know uh, people who weren't needed as in, as slaves on on encomiendas or haciendas, which are you know land grants from the king of Spain given to Spaniards here in this part of the world. Um, 
the, the, the natives on who weren't needed for, for that were, were told to live somewhere else. And often they were, they didn't set up federal reservations like we did in the United States, but the, the consequence was the same. These people were told to live on land that often was, they were allowed to live on land that was often uh, more vertical than horizontal, not near water. Uh, so from the very beginning, 500 years ago, or roughly 500 years ago, They've been marginalized geographically. Um, and in the last 500 years, because of what I consider to be pernicious racism in Mexico, which we could talk about later if you'd like, um, these people have been marginalized socially and culturally and educationally and economically. Uh, and as a consequence of that marginalization, They've, they've, as a defense mechanism, as a, as a group defense mechanism, they've developed this very strong sense of who they are as an, uh, a, 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 a subculture. I, I think that's the reason. I, I think that's the, the main reason why we still have this very rich indigenous culture, because they're hanging on to their traditions, hanging on for dear life, <laughs> because, because they, they, they've been, they've been uh, surrounded by... Uh, people who are exploiting them or, or taking advantage of right. them or uh, uh, marginalizing these people. So. Right. And, and before we go further into the traditions that relate to the mass that you connect, collect, can you talk a little bit about the, the universality of masking and, you know, why it's been done by people going back to, you know, whenever the tradition may have begun, you know, just by people around the globe? Masking started uh, in, uh, in all inhabited continents. I'm, I'm eliminating the North Pole and the South Pole, uh, Antarctica, Antarctica, uh, the, uh, in, in hunter-gatherer societies. As, as humans went through the... Uh, the uh, the, the cranial development, roughly uh, thirty, roughly thirty thousand years ago, uh, as as humans became more intelligent, I guess it occurred to hunters and hunter-gatherer societies that if they if they looked and acted and smelled like the animal they were pursuing, they would be more successful in the pursuit. So that's how masking started, huh. as, as best I can as best I can figure out, and and of course that activity. Where men in a, you can just imagine uh, thousands of years ago, men uh, organizing a hunt and uh, having a spiritual uh, conclave in the, the the night before around a campfire, uh, uh, begging the spirit of the animal to give itself up for the benefit of humans. Right. Right. Animals. Have, animals have a, a spirit. Yep. Right. Uh, and. Uh, and uh, and we know this because current indigenous societies still today believe that, uh, and so these the men would 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 put on the head and hide and pelt of the animal they were pursuing. That was the object. It was the mask, right? And they would probably engage in some sort of a ceremony, which would involve you know lighting torches at night and make pounding on drums and blowing into conch shells, making noise and having a ritual and, and which would be preceding the, the hunt and the mask itself was the, was the focus of that, of that, um, of that activity. And that happened in hunter gatherer societies around the world. And, and that's how masking started. And if you think about 
it wasn't just decoy. You have to act like the buffalo, right? You have to you have to pretend you're a buffalo. So it's acting. It's right. theatrical. So it's not only decoy. It's not only decoy, but you're acting as a buffalo, right? And you've and it's spiritual because you're you've asked the you've asked the buffalo to give itself up for your family or your clan or your tribe. So that's fundamentally how masking started. And of course, through the millennia, masking has become theatrical, uh, uh, Greek and Roman times. Uh, it seems to it seems that humans today have to mask. I think it's I think it's part of our um, our psychological DNA that we uh, and, and, and masking, incidentally, uh, is anything you do to yourself that's transformational. It's not, we tend to think of masking as, you know, putting on a mask of a clown and acting like a clown or putting on a mask of a, an old man and acting like an old man. That's the extreme and that's the extreme of masking. The masking is really anything you do during your day that, that, uh, that is in any sense transformational. When people wake up in the morning and get dressed, they're 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 making a probably a semi-conscious, in fact, in in most cases, a semi-conscious decision as to how they want to see themselves that day and how they want other people to see them. And you and then you remask to the venue. So I I got dressed this morning and I have whatever I'm wearing. And if I go out to a fancy restaurant to with my wife for dinner, I'll probably right. change my mask. Right. right. Uh, uh, well, uh, in, in a way, it goes back to what you were speaking of originally in terms of survival. And, um, you know, even today, um, you know, I think the pace of life is so fast, you know, to really feel like you're on your game or, uh, you know, responding quickly to different situations, you sometimes need to... Um, adapt different um, personas or different, you know, ways of interacting with the world. Yes, and absolutely. I think that's, I think that's one of the challenges that maybe back in the day, it was a very specified, you know, activity that occurred at a particular season or a particular time of the month. Whereas today mm -hmm. the stimuli coming at you is so fast and furious Um you know, you need to put your put your game face on, so to speak. Sure, um, sure. But and, and, uh, that's and, and, very interesting. And what what the what the Catholic friars um, observed when they arrived here was the indigenous population population masking frequently as a way to petition the spirits, the the, the god. There in their in their belief system, they had a pantheon of deities or, or gods or spirits that would be called upon and 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 the way they would bring the bring the uh, the the spirit from the spiritual world to the temporal world for an outcome would be to to for to, it was it was male men, men would mask in a ceremony um if, i'll give you an example uh, if you were planting crops in the springtime and you wanted it to rain if you were in the aztec society you would mask as tlaloc the rain god and and uh, to to ask the spirit of rain to to uh, benefit the, the the harvest, or or Tonatiu, the spirit of the sun. These are different gods around the agricultural cycle. So, it was in a sense um, spiritual. Uh, mass were also used to help people uh, back then uh, deal with um, uh, uh, things that we can now explain through science, but were frightening and mystifying to societies like uh, an eclipse. 
thunder and lightning, a volcanic eruption or a, a, a drought that produced a famine, perhaps. These were things that people didn't understand. And masks were used to invoke the spirits to, to mitigate or to uh, inter, inter, intervene in these, these uh, mystifying uh, uh, occurrences. So masking is something that I think, I think I'm right in saying that in all society, almost all societies, I believe, um, masking has been interpreted by archaeologists and their anthropo anthropologist friends through uh, interpreting cave paintings and rock surface paintings. It goes back thousands of years. Right. Well, and I think, I think, you know, it's a way of kind of maybe self-preservation and um, that still goes on today. Um, but I want to yeah. um, uh, share with listeners a quote um, that I came across uh, in the museum, which is from one of the Markmans. Um, we admire Mexican masks, not only for their intrinsic plastic value, but because they are so closely linked to the fervor, the ethic, and the vigor with which a town dresses itself in order to define itself, to show in the thousand faces of its masks, its expressive capacities, and its deep cultural roots. And I love that. So I thought maybe you could just um, elaborate a little bit and share some um, some of your knowledge about the actual role of the masks in the life of a community. Um, yeah, ma the mask ceremonies are really part of a fiesta. Uh, mask dancing is part of an overall fiesta. Um, and because of the influence of the Catholic friars, they, the friars, when they came here, uh, started using mass, even though the native masks were destroyed and forbidden to be used because they represented the wrong gods, right? The friars started uh, uh, because they couldn't communicate with their audience. Uh, they didn't share a common language initially until the friars learned native languages and the natives learned Spanish. There was a real problem here because the, the friars were here to cr Christianize, to evangelize. And they basically took advantage of the indigenous fondness for the behavior of masking. And they started making masks to represent characters in Bible stories as a way to teach, teach through theater the story. So, and that stuck with the native population. That's still going on today. 500 years later, in many, many villages uh, and small communities in Mexico, the mask performance is actually a reenactment of the Bible story at that time of the year. So the fiestas in Mexico tend to be built around uh, principally the Catholic liturgical calendar. Christmas, Easter, Carnival, Day of the Dead. These are big dates in the in the Catholic calendar. And, and this is when the, the Feast of the Holy Cross, the Feast of the Assumption, the Feast of the Virgin of Guadalupe, Corpus Christi. These are big dates in the Catholic calendar. This is usually when the fiestas are going on. And also national holidays like Independence Day and Constitution Day where people, you know, have a three-day weekend and can, <laughs> can organize a fiesta. But a fiesta is really a community's expression of its, of its cultural roots, right? Uh, it's very, it's often religious. People go to church every at least once every day, and it's all about a community organizing its limited resources for food and drink and fireworks and uh, and uh, paying the musicians and out come the dancers and the masks and it's mask the mass ceremony is very much part of the fiesta. So the religious use of mass is still going on today, big time, still very strong. Uh, mass are also used in villages to reenact. Um, Historical events like the Dance of the Conquest, 
where Cortez and the conquistadores mm -hmm. are fighting Montezuma and the Aztecs, you know, uh, these are all masked characters. Yeah. Uh, there's also occupational dances, different category of dances. They're um, the mass, the, the dance of the farmers, the tlacoloreros, it's called the dance of the the dance of the fish. These are, uh, as best I can tell, uh, and it's, as uh, best I can tell, it's a, it's a, it's a dance or performance that says it pays homage to the people in the village who are providing protein for the villagers, as best I can tell. So there's, there's a general category, if the categories of mass are religious, historic, and, and occupational, uh, those are the main category. Then, then there's, of course, carnival mass. Carnival mass are worn the week before Lent uh, as a way to disguise yourself so you, you can misbehave and people don't know it's you. Right. That's a separate, uh, right. separate subject. Um, did I answer your question or just scratch the surface? Yes, I, yes, you did. I mean, that gives a good overview and I'd like to just step, step back a bit um, and then really start talking about some of the specific celebrations and, and what occurs and, you know, maybe have you share a description of the masks associated with those particular fiestas. But before sure. we do sure. that, um, can you talk about, you know, how you got started with your collection and, you know, how you began finding and meeting the artisans and how you were received by them when you sought to buy pieces and maybe okay. share a, a couple of special encounters sure. or relationships that you've developed? Uh, I, I, I always tell visitors to the museum, uh, right away when, when I'm talking to them that I come back from, I, for 25 years I've been doing this, I come back from trips very frequently with no masks. Just because I want to buy a mask in a village doesn't mean I can. Masks are very often, and this is important, they're very often part of a family and they should stay in the family. Uh, I very often am in a conversation with a performer who's wearing a mask that, that he would tell me is, was made by his great-grandfather and his grandfather wore it, and his dad wore it, and in three years from now, his son's going to wear it. And I would not—I would no way buy that mask. That mask belongs in the family; it should stay there. And I hear this quite often. Masks are very much an heirloom within a family. Uh, the other obstacle to acquiring masks is that um, some of the masks that are used for more important religious characters, like Saint Joseph or. Santiago de Compostela in the Dance of the Moors and Christians, the mask that represents Santiago, patron saint of Spain. Those masks are communal property. They're owned by the village. They're so important to a village that the mask belongs to the village. And the person who's wearing it, it's, it's, it, it he's allowed to use it as, as an honor for being an exemplary citizen. Or, 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 or giving a lot of money to the church or something. But, but so very often I come back, if, but if I'm doing research and getting good information about the ceremonies, I consider that to be a successful trip. But um, what happens when I'm in a village, um, I'm, I, I tend to go to places I haven't been before because there's thousands of villages in Mexico where, um, where they do these uh, fiestas, these ceremonies with masks. And, uh, so I, I go the day before a fiesta or the morning of a fiesta, and I ask to speak to the, the somebody of authority who can who can allow me to, to see the fiesta, um, and I I carry a, a pocket full of snapshots of the collection of the museum, and I've learned many many years ago that's a very quick way to establish 
credential, why I'm there. Uh, they, 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 get, they, un they understand right away that I'm a collector of Mexican ceremonial masks and that my purpose would be to, to acquire masks. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's an icebreaker. Right. Uh, and then sometimes, the, you know, the word gets out that there's this gringo, me, who speaks Spanish, me, who wants to buy masks, me. Uh, and that um, so people come up to me frequently and and uh, and, you know, how much will you give me for my mask? You know, so I I don't have a problem engaging in, in, a, in a negotiation, but that that's how it that's how it goes. But again, I very often I, I see a mask that I would uh, I would die to have. Uh, uh, and I can't buy it because it, it, it's part of a family and it right. st should stay there. And have there been, um, yeah. you know, is there a particular location that, you know, you really enjoy going to or are there um, particular artisans that you've developed relationships with over the years? Uh, yeah, I know a few. I know a few mask makers. By the way, uh, a little secret that I'll, I'll share with you and your and your listeners uh, Mask makers make new masks, and they make masks for the village. They're, they they don't make masks generally. They don't make masks for for co the commercial market, right? Um, but the villagers in some of these tiny little villages, the villagers don't have money to buy a mask, and in some cases, they don't necessarily want to own a mask, but they want to participate in the fiestas, particularly carnival, right? So, here's my secret: mask makers very often rent masks to the villagers and when they're returned and they do this year after year after year and when they're returned those masks i would consider authentic because they've been they've been performed and mask makers will sell those masks because they have no particular they have no particular emotional attachment to them it's commerce right so my little <laughs> secret that i hope none of your listeners pay attention to <laughs> is, that, is that mask makers are sometimes a very good source of of uh, performance masks, right? And I know a few mask makers uh, uh, that I've met, and one gentleman in particular in Mishwakan that I, I contact f frequently, and they have a mask making work. Incidentally, most mask makers don't make a living off making masks. Usually they're supplementing their income as carpenters or farmers or bricklayers or what what have you, uh, they just happen to have a, a particular skill in, in carving and, and the right tools to do it. Uh, Bill, now I'm going to single out some of the masks in the museum that I found particularly interesting, either because of the visual creativity or the story behind the mask. And I love the background of both the mask and the tradition, as well as how you came to acquire these particular masks. So because it's a big category, let's start with the carnival celebrations. Uh, and, you know, I invite you to kind of provide the big picture and then come down on a more micro level to talk about a couple of specific masks. Okay, fine. Yeah. Um, carnival um, is a celebration that is uh, goes on in many, many, many parts of, of uh areas of Mexico. And it's, um, you know, it's the week before Lent, the, 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 uh, Lent is, you know, the 40 days of penitence leading up to Holy week and Easter Sunday. And it's a Catholic celebration, but it's, it's really a time where people can, we, we tend to think of carnival, uh, immediately we think of new Orleans, <laughs> Mardi Gras, or we think of Rio de Janeiro and the big floats and 
semi you know scantily clad women but carnival in indigenous mexico uh, uh is uh in these little villages that i visit uh is really an opportunity for the local uh, population to uh have their world be turned upside down and and they're allowed to do things and say things uh, that they would never be allowed to do or say during the rest of the year. It's it's kind of a, a in in a in a certain way, it's a and again I'm not a social scientist, but it's it's clear to me that this is an opportunity for uh, individuals and groups of individuals to uh, release social tensions, and it's probably a useful uh, celebration. It's it's very religious. It's a week long celebration where. Uh, everybody is. Uh, uh, they decorate the town, and the and there's fireworks and uh, mask dancing, of course. Uh, and food is provided for the, for the village, uh, even though they have often very limited resources. But um, it really is uh, the masks that are being used at carnival. Unlike masks that are for most other ceremonies, they're not really for role playing. You're 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 not wearing a mask of a bull because there's a dance of the bulls. You're wearing a mask because you're wearing it to mask who you are uh, so that you can misbehave, as I mentioned, do, do things and say things that you might not uh, be um, inclined to do or say during the rest of the year. So um, uh, very often people can uh, say things about their neighbor or take a pot shot at the local priest or the local politician, uh, and they're doing this. Um, behind a mask and it's in the, and in these very little villages these very small communities um everybody knows everybody's mask but it doesn't it seems to be okay you know it's it, people uh, are releasing venting if you will social tensions uh and, and the masks that are worn at carnival uh, again, they're not worn for role playing. They're worn for disguise, and um, and so masks very frequently, very often, are, are animal masks. You know, there's a donkey or a mule or a uh, a cow or a bull, um, and again, there there's no dance of the bulls. It's simply, and by the way, this is the only time I very rarely do I see women wearing masks in ceremony. But this is the time. Carnival is the time where. The rules are, are, are waived, and women uh, often are wearing masks uh, during during the carnival celebrations. Um, I love the whole idea that there's this kind of tacit understanding that we can all just uh, let it all hang out, and you know, I mean, it's in a way, it's kind of the anti-masking, you know, because um, you're getting to uh, indulge your your dark side, if you will. Um, and I think often of masks as ways of disguising that you even have that dark side. Um, but can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, do you have a favorite masks uh, in the collection that relate to Carnival? And, you know, is there any are there any stories about particular masks that you have in the collection? Um, not really. As a matter of fact, some, very often the, the performers during carnival will be will be wearing a mask that they might use in a different time of year for a different ceremony it's just they happen to have a mask uh from from let's say the dance of the moors and christians or a negrito mask or what whatever uh and they'll put that on during carnival uh, and it's it's very it's off, often 
it's it's really funny because I'm I'm sure that everybody knows everybody's mask, but it doesn't it doesn't seem to matter. Uh, and right. I, and I I'm I'm frequently just as as a general uh, comment, uh, Meg. I'm very often asked uh, about my favorite. Uh, masks. You know, people are in the museum. There's roughly 600 masks they're looking at, and they often are curious to know what my favorite mask is. And the answer, I don't have a favorite, uh, frankly. Uh, I see this as anthropology or or a a study of social custom. Um, I don't, if there's an answer, if there's a legitimate answer to the question, what what is my favorite mask? The the answer would be the, the one I'll find next week. Right. That that I get that. You know, and then that's my favorite until a week later. Yeah, you know. Right. So Yes, it's it's kind of the quest and yeah. seeing really the custom in all its multifacetedness. Sure. Uh, if that's what, even a word. what I look for in all masks and when I'm collecting when I'm out in the countryside is uh rarity. Certainly, uh, there could be a, ma- a mask maker that passed away years ago, and uh, one of one of those masks is is available for purchase. Um, carving style, how well it's st- carved, and so forth. But uh, and I love patina. I like old masks that have have so- shown signs of wear, uh, and um, have uh, very often because they're repainted often uh, every year, they develop a, a thick layer of paint that starts to develop a, 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 a lovely patina. So that's kind of the things I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. And is there anything more that you would say about Carnival before we move on to? Not another? really. It's, it's a, it's a, th- there are places in Mexico where Carnival is similar, you know, Veracruz or uh, Manzanilla, you know, where they have big, big Carnival celebrations, not, not on the order of Rio de Janeiro, but, uh, but I, I tend to go to the smaller villages and the Carnival in these smaller villages is, is really um, a village uh, uh, celebrating itself and allowing people to do things and say things that they uh, wouldn't perhaps be allowed to do or say during the rest of the year. It's quite interesting. Yes, I bet. Well, looking at another um, celebration, and forgive me if I mangle the pronunciation here, but um, the Dance of the Vijos. Uh, is there a story behind that? And Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's viejos means old man or little old men, viejitos is little old men or viejos, little old, old men. Um, and the Dance of the Viejos really goes back to um, pre-Hispanic dedication to the god or the spirit of, of uh, it, he was called Weweotl, which is the god of, of wisdom uh, and the god of age. And uh, it's still done, in, it's been, it's changed, of course, morphed over the, over the centuries, but it goes back to, um, in fact, there was a, there was a Dominican uh, friar named Diego Duran who wrote about uh, this uh, and, uh, in, a, in a book, uh, he was, he was, he, he died in 1588, but he, he, he wrote in the history of the Indies of New Spain. He wrote, he wrote about that dance, the dance of the viejos, the dedication to Weweotl. And so age in general, uh, and a mask that shows age or of an old man, uh, for example, really is, a, a, an honor or, a, an acknowledgement that, um, wisdom co- comes through age. And that's the root of this ceremony, and it's done. The most most well known uh, dance of the viejos is in Michoacan, uh, uh, around the Lake Pátzcuaro uh, region, 
and uh, those masks uh, represent old men who um, who the natives the natives uh, when the Spaniards arrived thought that the Spaniards looked hilarious as they aged because their hair turned gray. They had facial hair, of course, which the natives here did not have. And as as natives here, um, uh, uh, as their as their as their hair. Uh, as they grew older, their hair did not turn gray, whereas the Spaniards did. So the, the, the natives thought that the Spaniards looked, looked quite interesting as their skin wrinkled, their teeth started to fall out, their hair turned gray on their face as well as their head. And, uh, and so they started mocking the Spaniards in the dance. So the dance of the viejos, uh, in many cases, um, uh, is, a, is a spoof of, of Spaniards as they, as they aged. But the interesting story in Michoacan is that uh, du uh, during the, the colonial period, uh, the Catholic Church extracted uh, tithes from the from the c citizens in a community, uh, and at and at Christmas time they 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 raised the tithe, the the, the amount of money that, uh, and bear, by the way, very often the tithe was paid in in uh, with uh, live animals or uh, or the. Cosa Echa, the, the mm -hmm. crops, the harvest. Uh, people were required to pay to the Catholic Church a tithe, and it's called the diezmo. The ten, it's ten percent. Diez is ten, the diezmo. And at and at Christmas time, the Catholic Church extracted uh, even more as a percentage of of what uh, a family would be able to contribute. And uh, and in Michoacan, in certain places in Michoacan, the the natives did not have this uh, this. Uh, uh, the, the ability to pay this tithe, uh, especially at Christmas, and so the the the, uh, the, the dancers would 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 go inside the church and perform the dance of the viejos, in at the altar of the church as a way to pay their tithe, a dedication yeah. to the baby Jesus at mm. Christmas time. Fascinating. And um, what do the masks? So the masks then are of old men. What do they look like? Yes. Uh, oh, they're they're typically carved of wood, and they're um, I'm I'm the most common uh, old man is a is a is a wrinkly face. Could be an old woman too, by the way. It doesn't have to be a viejito. Could be a viejita. Mm -hmm. um, wrinkly face. Uh, one or two. You know, only one or two teeth in the mouth because <laughs> all the other teeth have fallen out. Um, uh, ne uh, the the hair on the head or the beard is always white, gray. Right. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what a vie that's what a viejo looks like. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I mean, it's yeah. a it, it's an insight into a whole different uh, you know dimension. So you know they're paying homage, I guess, in a way, and yet at the same time they're mocking the people. And yeah, well, it's yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a bit of it's a bit of um, I don't want. I don't want to offend Catholics, but the Catholic Church for for decades had extracted uh, the diezmo, the ten percent, uh, uh, from uh, individuals and families. You were required to give to the church, and of course, the church was then supposed to be uh, taking this. There, there were big warehouses in in these villages where they, the 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 produce, the live animals, the produce would would be housed in the Catholic Church. Then, of course, would be distributing this to the poor. The poor, most poor people in the, in the village. Um, that was the concept, mm -hmm. right? Um, how well that was executed um, could only be ascertained if you were watching the priest driving a BMW. 
Right. And was there any consciousness on the part of the Spaniards that these masks were, in fact, making fun of them? Or was it just... I've, I've heard, I've heard, and I don't know, I've heard that the Spaniards thought that they were being um, revered in these ceremonies. And, and in fact, they were being mocked. But I don't, I don't know if that's true or not. The masks themselves, and I have, a, I have a photograph in the museum of, of the of viejos from Michoacan that goes back to 1859. Somebody took a photograph and it was printed in a book. And the masks themselves uh, look like they, they look hilarious. So I can't imagine the Spaniards would be thinking they're, uh, they're being, they're being uh, revered. But um, I don't. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it goes back to this idea that everything is open to interpretation. And, um, you know, sometimes uh, people can be in denial about things. But um, in any event, um, looking at another celebration, um, and again, forgive my my lack of uh, Spanish fluency, but Mm -hmm. um, Dia de la Muertos, uh, that's a biggie. So tell us about that. Yes, yes, yes. Well, um, first of all, I would encourage your listeners to the, on the, uh, the podcast listeners to see the movie Coco, <laughs> the, the Pixar movie Coco. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it will clearly explain the idea of, of uh, in, in a very warm and wonderful way, the, the idea of uh, the idea that the, the, in Mexico and I suppose in other Latin American countries, especially in middle and lower class uh, society, the idea that the deceased in your family are still very much part of your family. Um, and at Day of the Dead, uh, families will put out the favorite food of the deceased in the family. They, there's always in, in, the, in the home a, a, a photograph of the deceased, uh, a, a little, they call it an altar or bóveda, uh, and there'd be a votive candle always lit, a fresh flower always next to it. But at Day of the Dead, this is the, the this is the celebration at the end of October, early November. Um, you would put out that person's favorite food, and uh, marigold petals on the on the floor underneath the, the uh, underneath the altar, leading out to the street, so that their spirit could find their altar and find uh, their their favorite food. This was a common. This still is a common behavior in rural indigenous parts of Mexico. Um, the, the ceremonies that are done today that involve masks, um, particularly in San Luis Potosí, Veracruz, uh, and um, I guess certain parts of, uh, of Puebla, uh, the, the, the masks of the, that are performed at Day of the Dead represent uh, lost souls who are in purgatory and looking for the road to, mm-hmm. to heaven, to the, uh, the gates of heaven. And there, uh, those masks are, uh, are the, the dancers uh, perform, and then they go from house to house, uh, and they beg for sustenance, food, uh, to sustain them on their search for uh, uh, the road to, uh, to heaven. Uh, to get out of purgatory, it's similar to. There's a, obviously a, a, a connection right. with Halloween um, in the states, where kids go from house to house asking for candy. But in Mexico, again, it's only in certain parts of Mexico, but it's quite common in in hundreds of villages. The 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 masks, the the mask performers, after they dance in the ceremony in front of an altar, then they go from house to house and beg for food, and, and they get fed mm-hmm, in the homes. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, 
and, so, and in some cases, beggars actually, uh, uh, the, the dancers actually turn their back on the, on the uh, person answering the door and they put out their left hand behind them uh, and, and, because I guess they're embarrassed to be begging. Uh, so they turn their back on them and, the, and the, the, the homeowner can put a, a coin, a peso or a peso or something in their, in their hand if they're not being invited in mm. for, for food. And is the idea that this lost soul mm-hmm. that they're representing, is that someone they know or is it just in general for all lost souls? It's for this. It's for the. Uh, it's all souls, uh, family members. It is also uh, Dia de los Muertos in Mexico is three days. It's uh, Dia de los Muertos Niños, uh, Day, Day of the Dead for Children, uh, All Souls Day, okay. and All Saints Day. Right? There's three different three different categories of deceased that are being uh, uh, being recognized at Day, day of the uh-huh. Dead. It's really Days of the Dead. Children, saints, and souls. I'm not sure what order that falls in, but um, and are any of the masks of children? No. Ah, okay. No, they're they're um, they're masks that that are often have a very uh, very distinctive uh, grin. Uh, and it's showing the teeth with a. Uh, it, and it, it initially it looks like a snarl, but if but if you ask the performers, they they'll tell you it's the, it's a begging. It's a it's a sign of begging. Like please, please give. Ah. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very distinctive. Um, these masks are in uh, in my uh, in my book on page twenty-seven. <laughs> okay. I'll look for That's that. That's a little plug. A little plug okay. for the book. A little plug for the book. Now, um, the next uh, celebration I want to ask you about is uh, the Battle of Cinco de Mayo. So yep. that's, and maybe you can also explain the historical significance of the occasion. Yeah. The masks that are used at, at uh, day of the, uh, of, uh, uh, the Battle of uh, Cinco de Mayo represent Mexican soldiers and French uh, soldiers. That are known. The French soldiers are known as Zuavos, Z U A V O S, Zuavos, and the Zuavos were a, a regiment of Algerian French Algerian soldiers who, uh, in 1862, uh, marched from Veracruz uh, toward Mexico City. Uh, the French were trying to reclaim their debt from Mexico, uh, and they were inter- intercepted by the Mexican forces and defeated. On May fifth of eighteen sixty-two, and the and the celebration today is done only. It's done in the city of Puebla, but it's but the major major events take place in the little village where the battle actually happened up in the mountains of Puebla. It's a village called Zacapuatzla. Well, there's two villages: Zacapuatzla and Huehuetzingo. Uh, and it's a it's a reenactment of that fight between the French and the Mexican forces. Um, and the history, the history of that is is really, I think, interesting. It's um, in 1862. Uh, well, uh, England, France, the United States, and uh, I'm forgetting one country: uh, England, France, United States, and Spain uh, were all owed very significant, significant amount of money uh, from Mexico. They had loaned money to Mexico to try to get its, Mexico out of its uh, burdensome debt, and uh, 
the uh, the government, the conservative government in Mexico at the time had had managed to negotiate debt relief from uh, Spain and England, and of course the U.S. at the time was embroiled in a civil war, uh, and so they were somewhat distracted. But the French were um, uh, insistent on reclaiming their debt, and that's why they sent soldiers to uh, to uh, to Mexico. Uh, and so the, and of course, <clears throat> Mexico is, as in many, many countries, uh, always are looking for uh, heroes and heroic deeds and heroic events. And so the Battle of Cinco de Mayo was one of those situations where the, the, the French forces were defeated by the Mexicans. Um, uh, Mexicans tend to forget that 27 days later, the French regrouped and marched into Mexico City. Uh, and installed Maximilian and Carlotta as the emperor and empress of Mexico. But we don't we don't spend too much time on that. We we celebrate Mexicans celebrate the the heroic uh, events. So the, the 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 dance the performance is a mock fight between the French and, and the and the Mexicans. And I would just say one other thing that's kind of interesting. There's a school of thought a history uh, interpretation of history that. If the United States uh, had not been embroiled in a civil war and had uh, uh, insisted on reclaiming their debt, there was discussion in the U.S. Congress at the time of annexing the rest of Mexico, the part of Mexico that didn't already belong to the United States. Uh, and uh, But because we were distracted with uh, uh, the civil war, uh, that didn't happen. So there's a school of thought that says if if uh, if it weren't for the Civil War, uh, I would be talking to you from the United States of America. Huh. Interesting. <clears throat> well, it's fascinating to think about, you know, the twists and turns that history takes and, um, you know, what might have been uh, had not there been yep. this or that going on. And, you know, it's interesting to me because, I, you know, I think most people don't necessarily uh, realize that there is a French influence or factor in Mexico's history. I mean, I think the the relationship with, with Spain and um, the Spanish is very well recognized, but... Um, you know, it's interesting to have this conversation because it weaves in, you know, a different dimension of Mexico's history. And I think most people think of Cinco de Mayo as a completely different, having a completely different meaning. Um, well, you know, you, yeah, go I ahead. Mean, May, 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 May 5th in the United States. I mean, a lot of people think that May 5th is Mex Mexican Independence Day. I mean, exactly. It's, be, it's, be, it's become prostituted by from the, by the liquor companies into a, a time to drink tequila and margaritas and um, and yell, you know, yell Viva Mexico. But that, that it's uh, it's it's uh, certainly not the Mexican Independence Day. That's uh, that's uh, September 16th. Right. So I love that having a conversation about something like masks is such a window into the history of a country and, you know, maybe some fallacies or misperceptions about, uh, you know, historic events. Um, well, that, that's that's precisely what happened to me. I started collecting masks because I thought they looked looked cool <laughs> aesthetically and I knew they had some some meaning because of all the conversations I'd had with my anthropologist friend in Mexico city, but it really is, it was an, op it was a door that opened into history. Um, 
because of mask ceremony that, that I found as fascinating as the mask itself. And I love that when you have a passion or you're drawn to something and um, it just grows and grows and grows on you, you know, that, that you, I think it, it's a very lucky development when people find something that can sustain their interest, you know, for long periods of time. Yeah. I don't. I don't think everybody True. has that. Has True. that? Uh... No, I. I got very lucky. I. I I'm. You know. I always jokingly jokingly say that. Uh, you know. I could have been uh, interested in in uh, sports cars or, or something frivolous. You know. But, right. But uh, I just became really interested in in this. It's. I think it's because I'm an American living in Mexico that you know. I. I'm not sure I would have had had the same passion of studying the the west the the, the native american uh societies had i been in uh, you know in, in racine wisconsin or something but anyway well i do think there is an element of Who you knows? know what fascinates us in many cases you know can be something that we that that is unknown or you know to take that even further right. exotic um and yet yeah. at the end of the day you know i think our conversation bears out um you know we're all human and everything we're talking about is a very specific, localized manifestation of universal, you know, um, desires or needs. Um, and that's the thing that I love about culture is that there are all these, you know, very unique and um, rich traditions. But if you dig into the impetus and the motivation, you know, it's, it's something that's just part of our human condition. Um, right. It's it, absolutely, absolutely. Right. And so now to look at another uh, tradition, um, let's talk about the Pharisee masks and uh, the passion of Christ. Ah, okay, sure. They, well, there are many, there are many because of the influence of the Catholic friars when they first came here, teaching Bible stories through mask theater to the natives because they, I think I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, they didn't, um, the, the, the friars initially couldn't communicate with their audience uh, in, in, uh, in terms of teaching the tenets of, of Catholicism. And so they started, uh, they started making masks of characters in Bible stories in order to teach the Bible story. This goes back almost 500 years. So, so this is still going on today. And uh, so it, around the key Catholic dates, Christmas, Easter, Carnival, and Day of the Dead, particularly, uh, mask ceremony, uh, uh, is, is, uh, is, is really in most cases reenacting the Bible story. And the, probably the most, um, dramatic is the reenactment of the passion of Christ, uh, at Easter time. And all the characters that you know, from, from Cecil right. B. DeMille's movie, <laughs> or, 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 or you Charlton Heston fans out there, um, the the, uh, the all the characters that you know from the the re from the the resurrection story uh, would include uh, the the Pharisees the Pharisees who were a sect of Jews that didn't agree with Christ's teachings and a and the reenactment today is that these 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 uh, these characters uh, masked characters chase uh, Jesus uh, and capture him and turn him over to the Romans, the centurion guards, that, which are also masked characters in this in this uh, reenactment. So the Pharisees chase the chase Jesus and turn him over to the 
the, the, the centuriones, as we say in Spanish. Um, and then there's a trial. Uh, oh, oh, I forgot. There's a Last Supper. There's 12 people sitting at a table, uh, all masked. And the most significant character, of course, is uh, Judas Iscariot. Because Judas, uh, again, according to the legend, uh, identifies Jesus to the, Ro to the Romans. Uh, he, he essentially... Uh, turns turns is a turncoat and so uh and, and then there's a trial and pontius pilate um de denies trying jesus and and caiaphas does again these are masked characters and there's one other character in the reenactment um barabbas barabbas mm -hmm. the thief who who otherwise would have been crucified but it, it, as as was custom in the judea during christ's time at passover uh, uh, they, 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 it was accustomed to free a criminal, and Barabbas is that is that character. So all these characters are in the in the uh, performance of the reenactment of the Passion of Christ at Easter, uh, and the Pharisees are the are the um, the uh, characters who for forty days these are these are young youngsters. Uh, the, I think you have to be fourteen years old or older to be a Pharisee, but you have to promise. This is in the Yaqui and Mayo uh, indigenous cultures in the northern part of Mexico. You have to promise your the, the town elders that you will you will, will be a Pharisee. I think it's for six consecutive years. Um, and perform in the performance. Uh, what you do is you you uh, you act the, you act out this character uh, for I believe it's I don't I think it's twenty days or something like that. So you you and you're not allowed to speak when you're wearing your mask. You're not you are not allowed to speak. You could only uh, act out the fool uh, and chase this other character named named Jesus. Uh, but Pharisee masks tend to be uh, there are three indigenous cultures in Mexico: the Cora in Nayarit, uh, and the Yaqui and Mayo in Sonora and Sinaloa, where the, the, the dancer, the performer, who's a Pharisee, believes that their mask absorbs evil, and they have to go through a rite of purification on Saturday of, of Holy Week. Uh, the, the, Christ is symbolically crucified on Friday night, and of course, Easter Sunday is the next day, but on Saturday, these dancers destroy their mask as a rite of purifications. So these masks are very, very, very hard to come by. Um, in fact, the only reason they would ever sell me one of these masks is no, knowing that I'm leaving. So they're put, they're dumping, ah. the, they're dumping the evil uh, spirit on me, <laughs> on me, right? Uh, but in, in general, probably 95% of the dancers in those three subcultures that I mentioned, Cora, Yaki, and Mayo, they have wow. to destroy their mask. It's a rite of purification. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Wow. And, and then just to um, kind of help me and other listeners visualize the mm -hmm. actual celebration, um, does it take the form of a parade or is it literally like a, uh, a theater performance or is there music or? No, it's, 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 it's more of a it's more of a parade, but there's there's parts of it like the Last Supper where they they these actually that very often it's children who who play the the apostles right uh, and uh, uh, and 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 uh, so but the the when the Pharisees come into town 
to, to chase Jesus. It's kind of like a parade. And there's some of them wearing on, on horseback. And, and it's a, a long line. There's, God, there could be a hundred different uh, performers who come in as, as Pharisees. But in that, and that is a parade. And then they dance, and then they dance uh, to, uh, to drums, tambores, in front of the church. And, um, <coughs> excuse me. If someone wanted to attend one of these fiestas, um, you know, how do you find out about them and are visitors welcome and how long do they go on? And, you know, I know myself from, from, I, I enjoy attending these when I'm able to, when and a, a lot of the difficulty can actually be finding out where they are taking place and when, yeah. but if you could talk a little bit about just being able, you know, to actually witness well, yeah, I have, it, it, it really, it, it, I'm sorry that the answer is it depends, <laughs> but, but um, the smaller the village, the more indigenous part of parts of Mexico you're in, the, the more it's, the more it's required that you have permission to be there. Um, and so I, I think I mentioned this earlier, um, you have to go seek out somebody of authority and, and get, and get them to allow you to see the fiesta. Um, and so, uh, because, you know, I, some, very often uh, the, the, the performers are under the influence. It's part, it's part of a party, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and so you have to be very careful. Um, even if I have permission to see a fiesta, uh, I always feel comfortable standing next to somebody who's given me permission right. to see the fiesta because then the dancers out there look, looking at me can see me next to somebody of authority and that, that seems to be well all I need as permission to 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 be there, right? right? Uh, so it's not it's not something you can't. Assume. Then in there are other places I go where there's a dance festival, you know, where there there's tour buses, right? Uh, so, right. Well, it's a spectrum, uh, I guess. And, and knowing and knowing when the the the, the fiesta is is really uh, it again that depends too. If, if Christmas, Easter, Carnival, Day of the Dead, those are fixed dates, right? Right. Uh, knowing which village is going to, you know, if you're in the indigenous parts of Mexico, the smaller villages in, in Chiapas, Campeche, Tabasco, the Yucatan, certain parts of Oaxaca, uh, and the mountains of Veracruz and Puebla. Uh, I mean, most of the villages are having these fiestas. Right. Well, and speaking of which, um, a fiesta that I did have the ability to attend that I loved uh, was the dance of the Parachicos in Chiapas. And um, yeah. Uh, yeah. that that's, has some very, uh, you know, cool history associated with it. But I'll let you speak yeah. about that. Can you share the story? Well, sure. Sure. And that's that's probably, you're right, that's probably one of the most uh, dramatic uh, performances because there's literally in, in uh, it, it, the, the, the town is called Chiapa de Corzo, Chiapa de Corzo, Chiapas. It's right real close to the capital city of Tuxtla Gutierrez, the capital of, of the state of Chiapas. And on the feast day of St. Sebastian, San Sebastian, which is January 20th, they have this huge, huge uh, parade of dancers uh, and their masks and their headdresses are quite uh, quite interesting, but this um, uh, and the other thing is interesting that the, the the church lets the dancers perform inside the church, which is quite 
So that part of the ceremony is inside the church, and then they, of course, they go outside on the street to dance. But um, the Pado Chicos, the the story I've been told about the dance um, from different people is that um, in the 19th century, I guess it was the 19th century, there was a uh, a uh, uh, a woman, who, a, a wealthy woman, uh, and I've heard variations on that. She was the wife of the viceroy of of, of New Sp- of, of New Spain. This might have been actually this 18th century. Yeah, um, and she uh, she had a child, a, a young boy, uh, who was very very ill, and uh, the medical uh, the medical attention that ch- the child got in in Mexico City. I've also heard she was from Guatemala, but let's just say for the sake of the story that she's from Mexico City. She moved, she and her son, they moved to um, to Chiapa de Corzo so that she could be treated, her son could be treated by shamans, by uh, cunanderas, cunanderos, the me- medicine, uh, medicine men. <laughs> uh, and uh, she was a very wealthy woman. Uh, she uh, apparently built a hospital, a, a medical hospital. Uh, she uh, built a school for the village, uh, and, uh, and her son apparently was uh, cured or partially cured. Uh, and uh, but as he was undergoing um, the the uh, treatment from the from the from the shamans, uh, the townsfolks uh, would would they made masks that looked like Spaniards. Uh, to to pay homage, I guess, to this this woman and her son, with a very funny uh, hemp crown on top of the mask. It's a like a a, a half of a bowl uh, made out of jute hemp, sisal they call it, sisal in, in Mexico. And they would apparently go to his home and perform in front of his uh, home uh, or his window, so to help entertain the boy and make and, and, and make him feel good. Improve his spirits, uh, and that was the dance of the for the children, mm. Parachicos, the dance of the for the children, right? And this has been going on now since then, and it's of course expanded. The town has gotten bigger; it's become a big celebration. Um, there are now tourists that go there to see this this uh, this reenactment. But the mask itself is a highly car. The masks, incidentally, are, are made not by mask makers, mascureros. They're made by santeros. Santero is somebody who makes saints for the churches. These are highly skilled, very highly skilled carpenters or woodworkers who are in a different category than mask makers. They uh, they have a the masks have a very very high level of of skill reflected in the carving. Uh, they have glass eyes. Uh, and uh, and this funny crown, this funny Whoa. headdress. So the masks are quite quite dramatic, uh, uh, beautifully carved. But but they're the Santeros are ma- basically making a living making saints for the churches, but they're supplementing their income. Yes, making the, well, the masks of the parachicos. Yes, well, it's fascinating. I did not know um, that the masks were made by Santeros, and I yeah. did a a series on the Santeros of Puerto Rico. Um, and I, I traveled across Puerto Rico and met quite a few of them. And the perception in Puerto Rico is that these carvers, you know, have some kind of healing, sacred, spiritual capabilities um, that, that qualify them for this work. Do you happen to know if that's true of the 
uh, Santeros who create the Parachico masks? No, I don't think there's a religious. Uh, I don't think yeah, the Santeros the the word they may use in 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 Cuba, and I guess in Puerto Rico for the spiritual healers, they're they're, they're called Santeros, uh, and that's part of Santeria, right? In Cuba, uh-huh. uh, in in Mexico, the Santero is simply a mask maker. Actually, he's a saint maker. He makes saints, right. but he, he he himself is not imbued with any spiritual power, uh, like a like a like a kunandera would be or a shaman. Right. They're not shamans; they're mask makers. Yeah. Well, I have to say, you know, for listeners, it's an exuberant, uh, high energy, really fun uh, festival. I felt extremely welcome, um, and. Um, and it was it was a very special experience. Um, oh, it's it is absolutely beautiful. It's yeah, absolutely beautiful. it is. And the women are wearing. I don't know if your your listeners are familiar with the Gala Getza in Oaxaca, but the women are wearing the similar kinds of uh, very ornately uh, uh, crafted dresses with a lot of jewelry, and uh, the women are just elegantly dressed along with these. Uh, dancers, the Parachico dancers. It's really beautiful it to watch. Now, um, one of the things we talked about when I, <coughs> excuse me, visited the museum, were are the black masks and the slaves in Mexico, uh-huh. um, and this was uh, a revelation to me. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, about that. Sure. Sure. <coughs> Sure. Um, again, um, the uh, the dance of the negritos uh, is uh, is done in different parts of Mexico. Again, the probably the most uh, interesting area of Mexico is Michoacan, where the the, the, the negrito masks are um, uh, represent Mexican blacks uh, who uh, uh, very often are. Uh, uh, you, you, you can often substitute because in the, because in the caste system of Mexico the blacks were above the, the natives uh, when they were brought here as slaves the, in the in the caste system and so very often uh, they were um, and and rich rich Mexicans of course were pretty much as, as well as in the United States uh, having blacks as your household servants was much more um, uh, it, it was a sign of wealth, right? Uh, if you if you had a uh, a, a, a houseboy or two, uh, a black cook, uh, uh, in working in the home, uh, this was much more um, uh, much more a sign of wealth than if you had a a, a native Mexican. And so, uh, very often in in uh, particularly in Michoacan, you could substitute the word elegant for black. The dance of the negritos is the dance of the elegant ones because the, the, the dancers themselves wearing a black mask, these are natives wearing, a, these are Mexican indigenous people wearing a, bla- a mask of a black, but they're also wearing a business suit and all these ribbons and uh, an elegant headdress uh, because they're portraying themselves as uh, being elegant. Um, and um, the, the uh, people don't realize that there was this huge importation of black slaves, and there's still a very large population of blacks in Mexico today. In fact, the Mexican government has just finished a survey uh, identifying uh, the pe- Mexicans who 
self-identify as being me, uh, Mexican, Af, Afro-Mexicano. Afro we have African-Americans, now Mexico, and, and people who self-identify in the census. Now in Mexico, they've just done a survey, and there's 1.4 million uh, Mexicans who claim to be of African descent and, are, and, and associate themselves with, uh, with being uh, Afro-Mexicano. So it's a huge population. There are many, many, many villages in Mexico where um, blacks exist and uh, and live in in small communities. Uh, but in, in in any case, the the dance of the 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 dance of the negritos is a, a dance done by natives portraying uh, blacks, and very often the blacks are are, are depicted as being elegant or being uh, beautifully dressed. Uh, the black masks typically have aquiline mm -hmm. features, right? Um, and, uh, and sometimes with blue eyes, it's a black mask with blue eyes. It's really odd looking, but, um, just, just, in, just in case, uh, uh, this might be historically interesting and I'll try to do it quickly. When the Spaniards arrived, uh, and, and, and of course, they, the, the natives here in this part of the world that we now call Mexico, this geography that now we call Mexico, there had, had been no prior exposure to Europeans. And so when the Spaniards came here, they brought with them uh, germs, pathogens that the native population had no prior exposure to for, for, for 20,000 years uh, since the migration across the Bering Strait and the migration south from, from the Aleutian Islands. Uh, uh, there, there, there were thousands of years where the natives here uh, had no prior exposure to Europeans, and so the Spaniards came, and they brought with them germs, particularly the the, the seed of smallpox. And of course, you know, in this hemisphere, there were no horses or cows or pigs or sheep or goats or chickens. Those animals were brought here uh, by the Europeans, particularly the Spaniards, and they they too had germs or pathogens uh, that the natives had no prior exposure to. So the, the whole huge populations were decimated by disease. Uh, not no, not only smallpox, but different strains of influenza, what we call measles and mumps. And the blacks, for hundreds of years prior in West Africa, had already been exposed. The the, the Spaniards, the Dutch, the French, the, the uh, had already uh, had already plied the the coast of Africa, and already uh, created a, a germ holocaust, which the natives, the the blacks there, had recovered from. So blacks were brought here as slaves because they were much more disease resistant. They were bigger, stronger people than the natives, and of course the the the, the conquistadores who were given given land grants by the king of Spain needed labor, and so blacks were brought over, and they brought with them. Uh, very strong elements of their uh, Yoruban and, and Bantu cultures. They, brought, right, they had a very, very deep cultural roots. Uh, and so there's certain parts in Oaxaca, for example, some of the dances that are done by black communities in Oaxaca, they'd actually dedicate the dance to a, to Ruha, which is a, a, a West African god in the belief system of the blacks. And this is 500 years after the conquest. It's quite interesting. Right. Well, and it's, it's quite interesting that we're talking about um, dances or masking that uh, relate to um, blacks, and yet one is the Mexican interpretation, and then the other, um, you know, you're talking about is... Um, people celebrating their own heritage 
Um, and right. you know, I do think it's uh, it's very impressive and very powerful that um, people can retain and and continue to celebrate, you know, their roots and their their lineage. And uh, you know, I think for so many different nationalities, um, you know, there's been a, a sense of disconnection and dilution and um, so uh, I think that's one of the reasons that there is this fascination with masks or with any tradition that has been able to endure um, despite being, you know, uprooted and dislocated. Um, so um, at, uh, just to that point, just to that point, Megan, I, again, I may have mentioned this er, in, earlier in the podcast, but a, a lot of what's going on in these little villages in Mexico during these fiestas or s- celebrations is really a a, 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 a manifestation of cultural right. identity. It's, it's, it's these villages uh, feeling very strongly about the, their, their, uh, their indigenous roots and their and they, and of course at fiesta time it 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 bubbles right up to the surface it's really a celebration of of, of cultural cohesion or cultural identity and mask ceremony is just part right. of that um now i want to touch on one last uh dance uh that uh is fascinating to me is celebrated in mexico and that's the dance of the moors and the christians yeah yeah, that's the one dance that I'm aware of that was actually imported from from uh, from Europe. Um, you you know that just 30 years before Cortes arrived here, the Moors were defeated in Spain. The the Islamic Moors, the final battle uh, where the Moors were finally defeated, um, happened in Granada. Uh, in 1492, the same year Columbus discovered America, that was just 30 years before Cortes arrived here. And you recall that the, the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, had been occupied for 700 years by non-Christians, by Jews, Berbers, and Moors. Uh, and part of the, uh, the, the efforts of the Crusades failed to Christianize the Iberian Peninsula. The Crusades ended in 1291. The final battle in Granada happened in 1492, 200 years later. Parts of Spain and Portugal had already been Christianized, but the final battle happened just before uh, Cortes arrived here. And Cortes uh, and his conquistadores were very, very religious. And, and they, as, as part of the process of evangelization here in, 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 in Mexico, um, performed the dance of the Moors and Christians for the native population here in, it, with with absolutely no intent to explain what Islam was to the, to the natives here. It was simply a dramatization of the triumph of Christianity over anything else. And so the, the Christians are led by Santiago de Compostela, Saint, the patron saint of Spain, against the Moors who are led by this character called Mohammed, right? And it's a mock fight between good and evil, Christian, non-Christian, where the Christians always win. And that was done for the native population here. Early on in the conquest, again, to repeat, to dramatize the triumph of Christianity over anything else you might want to believe. Um, and But that, that dance, that performance is still done all over Latin America, really, 
but but particularly strong in, in th throughout many 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 villages in Mexico, uh, and it's done in other parts of Latin America, um, and the and the and the Caribbean, uh, and it's also still performed in Spain and Portugal. Uh, excuse me, in 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 the in the Philippines, where there was a where there was a Spanish Catholic evangelization. So and it's still done in Spain and Portugal as well. So it's a it's a imported uh, performance and imported dance and the Moors uh, very often uh, the mask of a Moor uh, is very often looks like a Spaniard because the natives here when they started doing the performance themselves uh, would mask as their oppressors the bad guy the bad guys in their mind were the Spaniards so very often the mask of Moors look like Europeans but um, right. not necessarily like Othello right <laughs> the Shakespearean character but uh, it's and it's and it's the and and Santiago, the Saint Saint James, the patron saint of Spain, that mask is very often a white horse. The 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 the, the dancer is actually uh, has shoulder straps, and Ooh. around his waist is a white horse. He he leads he leads the he leads the he carries a sword in his right hand and the cross of Christ in the other hand, and he leads the he leads his. Uh, his Christians uh, against the infidels, the Moors. And I'm just going to ask one more question about this, um, which is fascinating to me. Um, it seems that the continuation of this tradition by the indigenous population um, is yet another example of um, how we filter and interpret what's told to us um, and create our own meaning for it. Um, you know, I'm assuming that when this tradition is continued every year, you know, that they're not celebrating the victory of the Christians over the Moors. No. And I mean, what, what is the meaning? And, um, you know, because for something to be carried on, um, you know, I understand that certain annual events kind of <coughs> take on their own meaning and they exist just because mm -hmm. they're, they're, long-standing but mm -hmm. what are the people yes. celebrating yes. well it's interesting yeah yeah you're absolutely right uh, it's 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 lost its meaning i mean uh, uh, the, what what seems to be it, it's good versus evil there are as far as i can tell there are four arc archetypes of not good <laughs> uh, four archetypes of that aren't christian right in in ceremonial dance uh, one is the the Antichrist, the Diablo, the yeah. devil, right? That's the opposite of Je it's the opposite of Jesus, who's all good, is the devil, yeah. all bad, right? Uh, the other archetype are Jews, Pharisees, Pharisaeos, right? Who Mexican uh, the 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 native villages in in Sonora and Sinaloa and Nayarit that are performing uh, the reenactment of the Passion of Christ, these people don't have any idea. They're not anti-Semitic. They, they call their masks Pharisees, Pharisaeos. They don't call their masks Judíos, Jews. Right? They have no idea. To your point, it's 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 become uh, symbolic with just not Christian. Right? It's not like these natives uh, know about the War of '47, the West Bank, Gaza, Palestine, Hezbollah. They don't know any of that, right? They they have no they have no baggage. They're not carrying any baggage uh, uh, against uh, against uh, people of the Jewish faith 
they call their masks fariseos because those are the guys and those are characters that chase Jesus and turn him over to the Romans to be crucified. That's all they know, right? And this has been going on for hundreds of years, right? Um, the, the third archetype would be Moors. Islamic Moors, but the, again, it's it's an archetype of not Christian. Now, would you say would you say though, Bill, is it an archetype of not Christian, or is it an archetype of, you know, for purposes of of describing the perception, evil? Um, because going back to what we've talked about, as far as how unique traditions are, so um, you know can be so colorful and so fascinating. And yet underpinning that is this universal um, belief or need or desire. And, you know, I would say that, you know, every person on the planet has some uh, belief in, in good versus evil. Whereas, you know, the vast majority of people or many right. people, you know, have no vested interest in Christian versus something else. So, yes. So, so right. that's what you're right. saying, right. really. All, all I, all I know is that there, I've seen four different ar ar archetypes or, you know, this is Jungian babble, but uh, an archetype, you know, it's just, it's just the, 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 the devil, the, a Jew of a, a, a Pharisee, I should say, the, a devil, a Pharisee, a Moor and Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate has become archetypal. They call the they call the people, uh, the dancers who pit themselves against the Christians as Pilatos, Pilots, mm. and that and I guess that's simply because that 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 guy back then decided not to try Jesus, so he became partially responsible for for Christ's uh, crucifixion. That's the the, the legend, right? Uh, and it's it's always against Christianity. It's 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 these archetypes are Christian non Christian. Right. Right. But would you in, but in, to, in, in Catholic in Catholic Mexico? Right. And so am I off base in saying that to, you know, take it out one step further? It's it's not so much Christian versus non-Christian, but good versus evil. Yeah. yeah. OK. Yeah, sure. That's absolutely. Absolutely. Many of these many, many of these celebrations aren't very religious at all. Right. They're not religious. They're they're they're. It's party right. time. Best cultural destinations um, tagline is "People are culture, and connecting is the destination." And um, you know, for me, that's what it's all about: the idea of connection. And what I see in your collection and your fascination with the uh, mask making and, and mask wearing tradition is this keen curiosity about different forms of connection. And then to take that further, um, you know, you've created something that you share uh, with a lot of other people. And so you're kind of serving as a conduit um, so I guess I would just ask you, you know, your views on whether um, this pursuit of yours has an element of a desire for connection and and what that means to you. Um, 
well, the 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 the, 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 the process of collecting and doing ethnographic research is one aspect of it. I mean, I've been doing this for for years and years and years, traveling, visiting the villages, observing culture. You know, elements of marker markers of culture, right? Uh, language, dress, food, right? Folk art, music, dances with masks, and you know, all all the things that you would see in a native village. In, in in an indigenous village. So that's one aspect of it. Um, since I set up the museum for visitors um, roughly t almost 13 years ago, uh, I have visitors to the museum uh, almost daily uh, who come and uh, you're talking about connecting. Uh, uh, the, the biggest, one of the biggest bolts of reward I get is when when people uh, discover what I've discovered 30 years ago. They, they, they don't know that there's this, there's this uh, very, very rich indigenous culture that still exists in Mexico today. And I explained to them that there's, you know, that there's, uh, there are thousands of villages in Mexico where people live very much like their ancestors lived, you know? So I, and I, and I enjoy, I guess that, I guess what I'm saying is that I, I still collect, but my my biggest enjoyment now, or my biggest cultural connection, is when people come and they're 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 discovering uh, in the museum something that um, they never knew about or never thought about. Um, think, they think Mexico is Cancun or Acapulco or 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 uh, you, you know Puerto Vallarta, right. uh, and all of a sudden they're in this museum that, and they sometimes they think it. They, I have to explain to them because sometimes they think they're in, in a historical museum where, where, you know, this is the way it used to be. And sometimes I have to explain to them, no, 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 no. I could take you to any of these villages today and you could see these ceremonies. They're like, really? Yeah. Yeah, really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if I, again, I'm babbling. I don't know if I answered your question, but. Um, well, I guess you did. And in fact, you inspired one more and I promise it will be my last, but um a lot of what we've talked about, uh, to me, um, revolves around uh, the human need to belong. Mm -hmm. Do you do you observe yeah. that? Would you would you say that's a fair statement? Well, yes, there, there's definitely a human need to to belong. Uh, we we have to have a there's a group dynamic in, in all of us that has to be satisfied. And, uh, what I see in these villages, um, I don't know if you want this to pertain to me, but what I observe as a, as an outsider, as a amateur ethnographer, uh, an amateur researcher, when I'm in these native villages is a very, very strong sense of cultural identity, especially during the fiestas. This is the need to, and I think I touched on this earlier. This is a need to, uh, self-identify or group identify with a subculture under the pressure from the outside, the marginalization of these people have suffered for 500 years in this, in this part of the world. Um, you know, they've been marginalized. I, I think I said that ge geographically, socially, culturally, educationally, economically, and as a, re and as a reaction to that marginalization, they developed this very, very strong sense of cultural identity or cultural, cultural, um, uh, mm. cohesion. Uh, it, it, it's like, it's like, you know, gee, I, I can play tennis. So I should join a tennis club, uh, or, you know, church, church is a cult is a social, it's social identity, you know, in right. many respects. Well, it's, it, 
It's nice again, to know there are, there are people that that, that see the world as you do and, you know, that are safe and um, that you have some, some kind of shared values with or shared experience set. Yeah. Well, in any event, Bill, this has been fantastic, and I thank you so much for a wonderful Thanks, education Mike. and, um, you know, just a, a great explanation of your passion. Just the last thing I want to say to your listeners yes, is all of this is under threat of extinction. Uh, because of globalization, the rise in technology, right, the Internet television, iPhones, all of this, uh, eventually the, all of our, what we call our ethnosphere, the, 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 eth the ethnographic world we live in, if we don't destroy our planet first, if we don't destroy our biosphere first, which we probably will, our ethnosphere is shrinking, right? There's still many, many parts of the world where people can have a, a, a unique cultural experience. In fact, that's why people travel, right? Visitors to Mexico aren't 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 they're not going from Cincinnati to to uh, to uh, Cleveland for vacation. They come to Mexico, and there's a reason for that. It's a cultural experience, and all of that is under threat of extinction, eventually. And I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried about it in my lifetime, or my children's lifetime, or their children's lifetime, or their children's lifetime. But eventually, we're all gonna we're homogenizing. Right. We're homogenizing, and it's. And it's, and there's nothing, and there's less that we can do about that than we can do about our, 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 our biosphere. Right. We can't, what, what, what is threatening our ethnosphere is called progress. What, are, what is threatening our biosphere is called stupidity. Right. Well, that's my, that's my, that's my preaching. Well, I mean. And that makes all the more important the work that you're doing to document and record traditions. And in my own, you know, way, that's that's what I'm doing too. Um, but yep. Yep. well, thank you again. And uh, uh, you know, I'm delighted to have had this conversation. Thank you, Meg. I enjoyed it. 